This recording was made on Goringai Country, Northern Beaches, New South Wales. It's the only way that you can describe what a person is, describe what they do. There doesn't seem to be much job satisfaction or pleasure in this picture. Alright guys, big news, ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for my big news? Here it is, I got a cover up this morning at Curl Curl. Wow, that's big news. If you surf in Sydney, you'll know that's big news because when you get a cover-up at Kelco or pretty much any of the northern beaches for that matter, you are instantly elevated to the assignation of best barrel rider in the entire world because such is the potency of that feeling, how good it is. Even when it's just some shampooy washing machine situation, you get covered up by water and you're still standing at the end of it. You just feel that way. You feel like the most invincible person in the entire world. And I don't really mind being the best barrel rider in the world, guys, even if I'm not recognized with sponsorships and a position on the World Surfing Tour. Um, I guess like, I don't know, I guess I was just moving too fast for the CT to notice me back in the day. No, it's the WSL now. Whatever. I was just moving too fast. They didn't see me. And I don't really mind just being the best barrel rider in the world undercover, you know, and I'll just get my 20 second double overhead tubes at Curl Curl all by myself. No one needs to know except for the people listening to this podcast, I guess. Rolls, what are you even saying at this point in time? Unbelievable. Isn't that just the thing about surfing though? Like surfers exaggerate their shit way more than fishers exaggerate the size of their fish or the size of their boats. But anyway, I got a cover up. It made me feel good and made me also think about the fact that when that happens, it somehow triggers me to think about all the barrels that I didn't get because it's not a, it's not a, I don't know if you surf or not, but it's not a common thing, particularly for me, or I would suspect any other intermediate surfer to get barrel regularly. I've been in a few, in and out. It's always a good time. It's always special, but I have missed out on far more than I have gotten. I think about those sections all the time, and it's just the weirdest thing about my brain, definitely, don't know about yours, to just, you get a get a, just a washy cover up like this morning, but it makes me think back to, oh, remember that section at Little Narra when I should have pulled under it, but I was kind of skitzing about how short my board was and I pussied out of it, or I closed my eyes when I was in there and then I got absolutely ragdolled. And you just think about your failures almost more easily than we think about our successes. I'm saying we and I'm talking about the many pluralized versions of myself, because I don't know how your brain works. But you know what? This rambling introduction is probably a pretty appropriate way to introduce the conversation you're about to listen to, which is about mental health and the fact that it is, by nature, pretty much undefinable. Although in saying that, I got reminded of a thing that I heard recently that was a real light bulb moment for me the first time I heard it. And it was the idea that depression is fear of the past and anxiety is fear of the future. And I know that it's way more complicated than that, obviously. But I remember hearing that years ago and it being this real like trigger aha moment of, oh, that's what my brain is doing. It is going to the past or to the future and being sad about it. Um, And, you know, that's why I think surfing is such a freaking amazing church of the mind for me because it enforces me to be present. Like there is no time or space to think about something that's already happened or the things that you're going to do later. It is so 
like uncompromisingly demanding of my entire attention span. And I think that's where the therapy comes into it for me. Because therapy is like anywhere where I can diminish the inputs and silence like all of the voices demanding things of my mind. And sometimes I could achieve that just by myself, just without anything except closing my eyes and meditating. But that's pretty rare. And usually I find it really helpful to have an instrument of some kind, whether that's a surfboard or a bike or a paintbrush or a dog or my running shoes or anything else. Anyway. That's always been surfing for me, first and foremost. It's a mental health activity. It's a big part of my mental health diet. And I don't think I'd be nearly as grounded and as at peace as I am today if it wasn't for the time that I get to spend self-reflecting in the ocean. So the person I spoke to for today's podcast is Mr. Nick Carroll who is an extremely well-known surf journalist and actually, no, not even just surf journalist. The man is an author. He is a wordsmith and a bloody good one. But I wanted to talk to him specifically because of what I've noticed he's been writing about mental health. Nick is really outspoken and really consistent and really... Oh, you need. I'll put some links in to the description of this uh, podcast episode so that you can click through and read some of his work, which I'd really encourage you to do because you'll understand why I like his writing. It is always very straightforward, very simple to understand, and very unafraid of contending with this mammoth, terrifying demon that stands in front of all of us in the form of depression, anxiety, suicide, all of these horrible things that plague our society. Um, But before we launch into it, I do quickly want to say one other thing, which is that I should have clarified the courteous thing for me to do would have been instantly, as soon as we turned the microphones on, to acknowledge a thing that Nick said to me when we were emailing back and forth, teeing it up. And the first thing he said when I asked him if he wanted to do a podcast was, yeah, sure, but hey, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert. I don't have answers. So if that's what you, if that's the agenda, then perhaps not. And I really respected how upfront and how honest that was. And I said to him, well, I, I so appreciate you pointing that out. However, I think it is almost just as valuable to listen to someone articulate their honest lived experience as it is to hear from an academic who has studies and expertise to call upon. I actually find as much value just talking to people and understanding their their feelings and how they've encountered this thing called existence on planet Earth in bloody 2020. So that's why I like Nick. That's why I wanted to talk to him. And I'll be completely honest, it got pretty heavy. Like you going to hear it and you can make up your own mind. But truth be told, I almost started crying. And it's because Nick asked me a pretty raw question, which just got me going. And I think that's just testament to the platform that he set and, and the conversation that we were having. And it's exactly why I wanted to talk to him, even though it means that you're about to hear me choke up, which kind of sucks. Um, <laughs> I just knew he would set an awesome example of how to talk about mental health. So even though it makes me kind of uncomfortable to put this out there, I don't mind having it out there because the truth is um, I cry quite a lot. Like I'm a real sook at weddings and stuff and I just accept it about myself because I think it's just a compulsive expression like laughing. So I don't want to cry all the time and I definitely laugh a lot more than I cry, but I don't mind the fact that I will cry just as easily as I laugh because it's just... It's a reaction I don't have control over, but the response to the reaction is what I can control. It's, um, I guess, just a thing that happened. And that's the thing about things that have happened is, hey, rolls, it happened already. Probably don't waste time being upset about it. (laughs) 
So anyway, beyond all of that, this was just such a cool conversation with someone very articulate and observant and someone with decades of experience in my favorite activity on earth. So cool, sweet and nice. Enjoy this guys, Nick Carroll. I need to make a living maybe. Yeah, plenty of surfers must have said that about surfing like loving this thing and then it being a fairly unrewarding path to try and make money out of it. Completely. And, and it's not, you know, it's not necessary to, like surfing can be a, a, just a pastime and a, uh, you don't really need to make money out of it. Some of the happiest surfers I know are, are guys who are just tradies and, you know, just spent uh, their lives, they, you know, being plumbers or whatever, but they, they save up, they go to Indo for a month every year, they... Uh, they're good surfers, you know, competent. They buy the boards they want. Yeah. They've uh, got history with the sport. They understand it. Um, they're happy to watch the contests. Um, uh, they've got a lot of respect from their local surfing communities. Yeah. They're just happy with their surfing. It's cool. They keep surfing till they're 90. Yeah. They can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I chatted to Bob McTavish recently, and that guy, the energy of that guy at 76 years old is yeah. just like phenomenal. Yeah. And he puts it all down to the seat. Like he's yeah. just put his whole life. He's just to been the ocean. vibing off it the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's funny, Bob. Yeah, it's magic. <laughs> um, all right, well, I can chop and start this whenever, but are you good to just yeah, dive I'm in? It's totally good to go. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, um, don't, don't mind me staring at the sea. I'm just no, mate, I'm a surfer right as well. There. I'm probably going to do the same thing. I know, <laughs> I know how the brain works. Cool. When did you start surfing? Right here, right in that little shore break. How old were you? Uh, well, we'd been coming down the beach ever since I could remember. We used to live just opposite Bungham Beach. Yeah, I read, I read your book. Is it? Yeah. And, yeah, I remember you guys had grown, born and raised around here. Yeah, born and raised here and, and, and then just grew up. And we used to ride cool light foam surfboards out here and inflatable, you know, surfer planes and stuff. And then finally started getting surfboards and... Yeah, I can vividly remember. You see that little right down there? Yeah. That's where I caught my first wave on a fiberglass surfboard. And I just really vividly remember the, the rail setting, which it just doesn't do on a cool light board. Yeah, yeah. You know, I just, just took off on the wave and I felt the rail set and carry and I just went, <gasps> I went, oh, fuck. What I think I've this? kind of been chasing that feeling the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so funny. I have that specific memory as well. It wasn't catching a rail, but it was definitely feeling the manoeuvrability for the first time of a fiberglass board compared to a soft top and just right. going like the, ele Whoa. the electricity in it is just like it's, insane it's the electric guitar as opposed to the the, um, the nylon string you know? yeah, 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 yeah. yeah <laughs> so you're not on cool lights anymore what are you riding nowadays uh, I hope it's just a ton of surfboards I saw um, you on a nice yellow stick out at Bauer few months ago or yeah that's like year. a massive board it's like a 9.8 yeah. yeah we were planning on surfing um Quincy Bommy thought it'd be really good like Granger was frothing he wanted to tow it and so me and Tom went right we'll, we'll come down and paddle it and then we're like oh it's no good it just wasn't very good for some reason the soil was wrong wrong angle maybe something was wrong with it so we ended up surfing the bower and it was like grossly overgunned on that 9.8 but <laughs> it's always fun to surf that board because yeah. like when you do surf it like I surfed it the day before that and I surfed it the day after out of bombing reef just way at the fucking back of the reef out there mm. and uh, and it was awesome you know just awesome it's just a big old Cadillac type board yeah know? yeah. Just catch a wave it'll make anything 
makes big wave drops real easy. Yeah. Just smooth, clean. Yeah, it's yeah. just a G up to ride any board like that. Like, no matter yeah. how good the conditions are, you can ride a board like that in four Anything foot kinda. and it just makes you excited. Yeah. 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 Um, I don't have many, like, structured questions for you, but I have got a couple. Okay. And the first one I'm interested in is because I want to talk to you because I look up to you in the way that you uh, are quite willing to just take on the conversation of mental health and surfing. Mm. Uh, in what seems to be like a vacuum. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested to know who you look up to in surfing and why you look up to them. Um, okay, well, I've looked up to a lot of different people in surfing over the years. Uh, um, maybe taken hints from people more than just looked up to them. Mm. Like I always feel like it's one thing to kind of admire and respect someone, but it's another thing when they give you a piece of thinking or whatever that you can then put in your mind and carry with you. Um, I, I really vividly um, remember uh, reading about Jerry Lopez when I was quite young and reading this little piece in a surf magazine um, where they were talking about how Lopez was doing all these sit-ups at pipe at his pipe house yeah. and, um, and they the words they used were, Lopez is uh, into longevity. And I thought to myself, man, longevity, that's something I've never thought of in another context. I've never thought of, like, how long do I really want to live and do things? Mm. How long do I see my life's arc as? And how do I want to kind of prolong the best parts of my life? Mm. And uh, I've watched Jerry ever since and talked with him quite often about, about it and, uh, and watched him around it and listened to him around it. And um, uh, he's, he's done that, really, with his life. He's extended um, his life in surfing and uh, in the water and in the snow um, with his yoga, uh, with living a clean life and staying on a good line. Uh, the whole way through from, you know, when he was 20-odd and just starting to come to grips with the pipeline mm. to now when he's in his mid-70s and he's, he's still cruising and, you know, tell you what, you go surfing with Jerry, um, if you can get up, rack up a better wave count than him in a surf, you're doing real good. Is that right? He catches a lot of waves every surf. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He just cycles. And he can uh. surf for hours like that. Um, and so... You know, I, I guess he's one person who's really given me something to think about. Yeah. Um, uh, Terry Fitzgerald's given me a few really big things to think about. He's he's just so um, I don't know. Um, driven's the wrong word. He's so he's so rich with the idea of uh, how the individual can make a difference mm. in his or her own life, and 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 how important it is to do things your way. You know, mm. um, and uh, he's a living example of that over time mm. with his surfboards and his own surfing, and uh, even the way he's conducted his business. Uh, sometimes you could say that Terry um, could have been a lot richer financially than he is. Um, uh, there's plenty of really, really rich people who've run surf companies now, and he's of their generation. Uh, however, I don't think many of them could say that they've made the same kind of contribution that Terry has mm. uh, through his individuality. Um, 
you know, there's surfboards he made back in 1971 that people are fighting over now. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's such a cool part of the industry. I love that the artisanal appreciation has sort of returned to surfing after it felt like surfboard manufacture just departed the handshape era to this factory pop-out kind of syndrome where everyone's just like, there's a new thing, there's this consumerist little buzz that we all feel, and now it's full circle where there's these like amazing collector boards that go for thousands of dollars. Yeah. It's just awesome. Yeah. I will say it's kind of a hard road to hoe though. Like, I'm not sure if I learnt this from any one particular surfer, but I've always felt like if you want to be really, really good at something, it's going to be hard. Mm. There's nothing easy about being good at something. Like, it doesn't mean you think you're natural, you think you're naturally gifted at something, but if you want to be the best you can be at it, you're still going to have to work just as hard as someone who isn't naturally gifted. Fully. You know, you, you can't coast. Um, and uh, I think that's really true in the surfboard making world Um, the people who have become really great at it have just put in enormous amounts of time and effort and sometimes sort of broken themselves on the wheel with that work Um, but uh, they're also people who I really listen to in surfing Um, uh, all the way from Pat Wilson to Morris Cole to my old friend AB when he was still with us. Um, they all had, had made you know tens of thousands of surfboards mm-hmm. from the days when they cut the whole thing by hand out of a really shitty blank to the days now where they... Uh, um, Lasers uh, and CNC Yeah, they, and... they use the CNC cutter for all their stuff and they fine-tune it yeah. into a perfect board. Yeah. Um, they've gone through that whole arc and... Going through that arc has, has given them, um, you know, the depth and the, the quiet authority and understanding yeah. of the surfboard. Uh, you can't kind of pretend that. Yeah. I do notice some people kind of try to fake that, like, but you just can't. You can't fake that. Like, you just got to do the hard work Yeah. And make all those boards. Yeah, you can fake it for a short time, I guess, but not in any sense of longevity. Like. No. No, no. I like that point, man. That reminds me of, um, I remember I was at a wedding a few years ago and I've got a friend who's an amazing singer and yeah. someone said that to her. They're like, oh, I wish I could sing like you. I wish I had a good voice. And she just chewed him out in front of like a group of people. And I think she might've just been having a bad day, but she yeah. was like, this isn't, a, this isn't a fucking accident, mate. Like, don't think I don't sing for six hours every day yeah. since I was 11. Yeah. And, and it was this like this beautiful articulation that you're right like anyone who's really good at something is not by accident it's they've not like by they accident. cut their teeth yeah. and the best people at it make it look like they're just it's a gift and that they haven't had to work for yeah. it yeah. I li- I, yeah I like that I like that as a measure of a person it's a measure of skill that the, the uh, ease with which something's accomplished apparently on the surface um, I don't know maybe I, I'm sensitive to that because uh, writing's really like that too, trying to master the language and, mm. and how to flow, how sentences flow. Um, uh, that's the kind of lifetime's work too. So. Definitely. I've actually noticed that about your writing in particular, <clears throat> if you don't mind me saying. I read your book and yeah. you're like a demon with words. And mm. then I read stuff that you, articles you write about mental health and mm. the tone, the language, it's like, it's quite, it seems quite deliberately different where... Mm. I know that you can spin a verse like the best of them, but when it comes to something like mental health, I notice that you've got quite truncated, quite black and white 
here's this, here's this, here's this, so yep. that everyone can digest it. It's not exclusive to a specific, yep. you know, literature audience. Yeah. And I really respect that about the yeah. way you approach the issue because it's yeah. like, like I say, it's a vacuum otherwise. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any place for clever journalism in that arena. Yeah. Uh, it's a little bit like uh, the shark issue um, and a few other things when there's human life and death involved. You just want to clear away the shit. Yeah, just don't be, don't try to be clever and smart with it. Yeah, colourful No one's going to appreciate that. You're you're not a bigger you're not bigger than those issues. You know. Yeah. Like just step aside, just and try to focus your attention on the subject itself. Yeah. And try to work through it a bit. I really learnt that from my dad, who was one of Australia's great journalists, and and he was really clear in his mind about how to write in that way. Mm. Um, you know, quite precise and focused on the subject and, and just clearing away as much shit as possible. Yeah. But also trying to get to the heart of whatever that issue was yep. and bring that out. So, because it's at, at the heart of the issue is where it connects with everyone, right? Like yeah. on the surface, on the little bits and pieces floating around it, you're not going to connect with everyone. You might connect with a few people. Um, they might appreciate you. Your choice of word play or yeah, yeah. whatever, you know, or your take on it at that moment, you know. Um, but you won't connect with everyone and uh, sometimes you put other people off and, like, when it comes to that sort of subject, you don't want to be putting people off. Totally. Maybe challenging them to think but not putting them off. Yeah, it's, it strikes me that it's about inviting as many people to the table to have the conversation as possible. Mm. And I guess, like, that must have been... An, what the biggest change in your whole industry and career is the fact that you write an article now and you, people can write straight back to you straight away like and everyone can just chirp in with as many words as they want yeah and so i guess it like necessitates that function even more to just have it very pared back very basic some, set the tone for a fair conversation yeah somewhat i mean that 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 give and take aspect of modern um, online journalism, uh, you know, that can be played within quite a few different ways. There's some people who who actually work on how they can get a response out of the audience. Yeah, they're called trolls, aren't they? <laughs> well, they want the trolls to spasm out and yeah. flood the comments section, you know, with nonsense. And uh, that's the way in which they conduct their careers. Uh, um, and I guess that's fine. I mean, I kind of, I kind of think there's too much bullshit in the world. Well, there's definitely really. enough to be generating more of it. Yeah. Do you really need to generate more? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Especially with how heroic people feel behind a keyboard and yeah. how much people are willing to just start rinsing each other for no reason. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And like, I'll do that too. I'm like, I'm, I'm just as susceptible to a, to a fight or flight reaction. To, to some article someone's written, you know, like you, you'll read something and you'll suddenly find yourself really angry about it or, yeah. or whatever, you know, and like I've just really learned just to kind of not totally trust my initial reaction to someone else's thoughts. Yeah. A lot of the time I'm being played, uh, a lot of the time my reaction is not due to what they've said but due to something that's ticking away inside my head. Uh, that's really worth observing and trying to understand yeah i love um, that i love that point mm. of being able to observe yourself and know that yeah you're having an emotional reaction and there's a difference mm. between reaction and response yeah yeah and the longer you can you know make that gap probably yeah. the more rational your response is going to be totally 
Well, it's again, it's kind of piss easy for me to say that. I'm like 61 years old. I've had a lot of a lot of life experience now. <laughs> but like no more than anyone else as far as the online thing's concerned. Yeah. And that's just sort of everyone's adjusting to that at the same time. I think so, hey. Yeah. You know, uh, I think so. I think it kind of, um, some of that is the, the heart of what um, you're concerned about here, Roland. Um, it's really easy uh, online to encourage people into sick thinking, what I would call sick thinking, which is thinking that is based upon false premises. Mm. Uh, and that can really carry you into some bad places mentally, I think. Um, uh, it can cause you to become dislocated from the reality of your life and other people's lives. Uh, and you see that a lot, like I, I kind of like don't really know if this is the case or not, but there's, the world's currently flooded with conspiracy theories, right? Um, whether it be about COVID-19 or about the global economy or about Donald Trump or about this, that or the freaking other thing. The shape of the earth. The shape of the earth, whether it's flat or round. <laughs> Pretty sure none it's square. The, yeah, <laughs> honestly, none of those things have anything to do with anybody's lives. Yeah. You know, if yeah. you looked at what people were doing with their lives when they get up in the morning, what happens to them, what they do in the first 10 minutes, the first 15, 20 minutes, where they go to work, the people who rely on them for help, for advice, for uh, encouragement, the people who they rely on for that stuff, um, the way in which their personal relationships pan out, the things they choose to do with their free time, all that stuff is way more important than a conspiracy theory. Totally. It plays a much bigger part in people's lives. It's the only thing they're doing. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, like, pay a bit more attention to that. What are you doing? Totally. Actually. <laughs> I, have, I have this thing where, like, when I notice myself in, in one of those traps of, like, realising that I'm um, engaging in something which has nothing to do with my life, mm. I, I try and remind myself of the, the, what you see is all there is. And there's no point and in letting all the extraneous bullshit in. Mm. And it's almost like if you think of the body and physical health and the brain and mental health, I almost mm. think of it like... I'm very cautious about the things I put in my body because of the way it's going to make my physical health react. Yep. And when we're in this world where whether it's a billboard on the street or just a pop-up on your phone or a comment thread or something, it's almost like someone is just leaping out of the shadow somewhere and injecting something into your body and making your body fuck out on you. But they're doing it to your brain and making your brain fuck out on you. Okay. And, and it has nothing to do with like... What you're doing. What you're doing. Or what, What's in front what you of you. like to do, what you want to do, what yeah. you plan on doing. Yeah. Totally disconnected from all that. You just, off your brain goes on its wild goose chase. Totally. And Very then, human though, right? Exactly. Because then it ripples out and it keeps going because it can just seed in there. Yeah. And then the more it happens, then it starts to actually shape your opinions, your perspectives on the world. Yeah. And eventually your behavior. Yeah, eventually your behaviour. That's yeah. the crazy thing is that it then traverses back from the digital realm, back into the real world, where much as we like to exist on comment threads, we still have real relationships and they are the real ones. Mm. Like, full stop. You've got a human in front of you. You look them in the eye. Yeah. You interact. Yeah, yeah. There's, you're never going to replicate that level of meaningfulness online. No. Uh, nor will you be able to replicate the space you're taking up at this moment yeah <laughs> right? yeah where we are we're in a surf club at Newport where I'm like a metre and a half away from the front windows 
Yeah, there's you know, air in here. I'm breathing some of it. Here we are. This is where we are. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so in context of the people that you look up to, I'm interested to know what your definition of cool is. Cool. I think I had a better definition of cool when I was a lot younger because cool seemed to matter a lot more then. Okay. Um, I just felt like people who were cool were people who looked like they had it more together than I did. Mm. You know, they looked like they had things more wired than I had them. Uh, and the more effortless that looked, the cooler they were. Uh, and sadly, a lot of those people didn't really have it that together. They were kind of acting it out. They had the facade. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, I've really relaxed my head about all that now. I just don't... I don't think too much about cool anymore. Maybe because I've, like, done so many super uncool things in my life and actually enjoyed them. Yeah. You know, that the, it's caused me to uh, like relax about the whole thing. But I know it's very important when you're young uh, to try to understand who is cool and who isn't, and because it's a way for you to find out how to fit in, which is just so vital when you're younger, um, and it can stay vital for a long time. Yeah. But certainly when you're in that 13, 14, 15, 16 year old age bracket fitting in with your peer group is like it matters way more than your parents it matters, matters more than anything you're doing yeah really. yeah and uh that's cool is a natural kind of quality that's going to come to the surface when you're playing in that zone of trying to fit in because mm. you're just comparing yourself to everybody else all the time mm. right going ah I'm cooler than that person, but I'm not as cool as that person, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm about at 65% on the cool meter, but I've got a way to go. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so I ask that because it's like, it seems to be, whilst I agree with you and I, much, I try not to think about cool too much myself, it's really hard not to in the surf industry. Like the whole surf industry is like built around what's cool and yeah. who's cool and why yeah, yeah. they're cool. And like it's all very kind of undefined, but yeah. it's very much this relevant factor in determining who's hot shit right now. What are yeah. you writing? Oh, that's, that's not cool. That's not cool. Is that a, is that a wedding from five years ago? Ugh, that's yeah. not cool. Like, yeah, yeah. Haven't you seen mine? Mine's got no zip. That's cool. Like, yeah, there's yeah. just this weird, cool is still existing in surfing. Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah. And like think about what you just said, comparing yourself constantly. Like if there's too many people in a lineup, it's pretty hard not to, especially if some yeah. of them, I don't know, same age as you, look like you, maybe they have a slightly better board or you watch them wrap a better turn than you. It's hard not to start comparing yourself. Completely. Yeah. It's so a, it's so a, how did you learn to get away from that? Well, we had a really weird experience here at Newport as grommets, I think. Um, uh, a lot of our first three or four years of surfing was done kind of like out of the way of anyone else from any other beaches. Like, we were just grommets here. Um, you know, maybe we interacted, like I think we belonged to a surfboard riding club up at Palm Beach, but that was full of adults. Mm -hmm. Like, they were, everyone else in that club was like in their mid-twenties. We were just sort of like 13, 14. Right. So we weren't comparing ourselves with them. Like, we were sort of going, oh, they cool. You know, look, we've got long blonde hair. And like, that guy's got a car. You know, woo, look, they do soul arches and shit. But, <laughs> but we didn't really kind of think, oh, we've got to compare ourselves with them. We only ever really compared ourselves with each other. 
mm. and, and, and it was mostly done on the basis of like, well, fuck, how good are you surfing? Like, you know, mm. and, and we would hassle each other and we'd fight for the attention of the slightly older guys in the group and um, all that stuff. And we never really knew that we were very good surfers until all of a sudden we started uh, branching out outside Newport and going to other beaches. And, and like, I vividly remember this. There were a bunch of kids who used to go to my high school who were, you know, definitely concerned with being cool. You know, puka shell necklaces, you know, blonde hair, um, you know, cultivating that air, you mm. know, like, mm. I know what's up, you know, and I'm not bothered by anything, yeah. you know. Yeah. And word would go around, oh, yeah, they surf, you know, they surf here, they surf that beach, this beach, all that stuff. And... Um, yeah, I remember running into some of them somewhere, all of a sudden, out of nowhere. I would have been like year 11, maybe, year 10 or year 11. And I ran into some beach, maybe Monavale, and a bunch of them were out there, and I just suddenly realised, these guys are cooked. <laughs> they can't surf. Yeah. I can surf. I'm like a good surfer. I'm like way better than them. Mm. My little brother's way better than them. And our other buddies are all way better than them. And we're not cool. And it was a revelation. Right, so it broke it for you. You just like suddenly cool as you shattered. Wow. Wow. What in a our cool faces. story. I like, don't mean a good story, not a cool story. And you're just like, fuck, well, you don't have to be cool. You, gotta, you just got to rip. Yeah. And then everybody thought we were cool. So it's <laughs> just like, fuck, what was the point of that? Wow. And then so we started, like, then we started measuring ourselves more against the waves. We wanted to ride and trying to find the surfboards we wanted to have in order to ride those waves mm. and trying to branch out, go to places like Hawaii and, mm. and Indonesia and all that stuff and like really trying to challenge ourselves individually yeah. you know, and just forgot all about that cool shit. Maybe that's what made you cool is because you then you, you hit that like level of authenticity of genuinely not really caring yeah. what people thought, realising that other people's version of cool isn't real. A bit of that, but, you know, I think it's also, like, if you're really good at something, especially when in that age bracket, you know, 15 to 20 years old, you get really good at something, everyone just steps right back from you. Yeah. And just goes, wow, you can do something we can't do that's heavy. Yeah. Like being a good guitarist or, like, anything, right? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, Everyone's like, whoa, Uh, they're on the way to mastery. We've got to stand back here. Yeah, we're looking at a superhuman in some place. Slightly more superhuman than us sort of thing. Yeah. And then you're free to do what you want then. Like, no one's, you know, you can start looking to the older surfers, you know, and really starting to learn stuff from them and and really starting to develop your own style and, uh, you know, trying to find a way forward in the sport. Yeah. You know, for yourself. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's it. I'm trying to apply that to your to Jerry Lopez and Terry Fitz and like it seems like the common denominator is authenticity and people who are just following through on on what their gut's telling them to do and it drives them to a point of achievement where it's like it validates it almost. Mm. Yeah. I mean that's probably true. I'm sure um, everybody experiences moments of great self doubt on that path you know mm-hmm. uh, where you think well I'm just an idiot you know what am I doing when something doesn't seem to work and you were sure it was going to work and it doesn't work or um, all that stuff but authenticity is a good word 
I would say that authenticity is extraordinarily easy to achieve uh, if your mind is in the right place um, and if you're not affected by an imbalance mm. in the mind, which is what seems to be at the core of real mental illness is some kind of biochemical imbalance mm. that has a physical cause, uh, that it's not just like a neurosis caused yeah. by parental separation or, or some trauma, some other trauma, mm. but an actual biochemical imbalance which leads your mind to not work the way it should. Mm. Um, that's what most concerns me about mental illness, actually. That, that's actually my exact experience. Mm. I got diagnosed with depression when I was 22. Yep. And then, do you, have you, I don't know if you're familiar with what that means, but it yep. means like going into a doctor's office and filling out a fucking questionnaire, dude. Yep. A, 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 questionnaire. Mark your answers A to D on how you feel today. And I'm, I'm sitting in there doing it, thinking like, okay, well, this afternoon I feel pretty lousy, so I'm going to mark this accordingly, but yeah. I felt better this morning, and then I might feel better later tonight. But according to that, I was critically depressed. Yeah. And then realizing that, like, oh, hold on, this isn't very accurate. This isn't very. <laughs> I don't know how. I don't know how much this is actually like, <laughs> considering it, all the factors that are contributing to my answers here. But it basically forced me into this like realization that I wasn't being honest with myself about my environment and the things that I was surrounding myself with. Yeah. The way that the amount of power that I had over my own biochemistry. Yeah. And and potentially. Um, correcting some of those imbalances that I was definitely experiencing. Yeah. And then it just like, much like your definition of cool exploded, my definition of mental health exploded thinking like, hold on, this pe- I just got a diagnosis that other people get who are born with definitely a chemical imbalance and their yeah. shit's not firing properly or yep. they experienced a real genuine trauma that has like imprinted something horrible on them. Yep. But apparently we've got the same affliction and I'm just here eating shit food and not exercising. So <laughs> hold on. This is like something's amiss here. And it really opened me up to the complexity of it and like yeah. how, how much environmental stuff can really affect yeah. you know how we feel yeah can i ask what caused you to go see the doctor um i just hit a point where i was being selfish if i didn't go to the doctor because no. i had my girlfriend at the time and my mum kind of in tears a lot and i realized right. it was about me yep and i was in tears too and blah 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 and you're the victim at that time in your life and it's yeah, all it's are. so easy to forget that yeah. You, you, you got a ripple effect from all your, the energy that you're putting out and then realising like, fuck, it's going to make me maybe cry if you forgive me. But uh, my mum got really upset and it made me think like, holy shit, I can't do this to my mum anymore. Right. You know? And then realising like, that's other people as well. And yeah, just like it was time to take responsibility. And it was this thing that I was so afraid of. Uh, but then I had other aspects of my life, kind of much like surfing and paddling out into a crazy big day beyond my limits where I yeah. knew that it's a good thing to do the things that you're afraid of because yeah. it's the only way to not be afraid of them anymore. Yeah. And then that combined with realising the emotional effect it was having on the other people in my life. Right. It was just like, okay, shit, got to cross the bridge, yeah. get to the other side. And it turned out to be the best thing I ever did. Right, right. So... How did you gain agency over your feelings of depression? Did um, you gain agency over it? I don't think I've gained agency because my, I mean, it's like seven years since then. Yep. And I, I consider myself like mentally healthy 
from a place where I was mentally unhealthy. Right. Um, I don't actually believe that it, I don't think, I, I wouldn't tell, I'd never tell anyone I've been cured of an illness. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never ever. Yeah. And like, I don't, I don't, including myself, you yeah. know, I don't tell myself that I've been cured of it, even though yeah. I feel great today, I felt great yesterday, hopefully going to feel great tomorrow. Yeah. It, you know, life's pretty good at the moment. I don't pretend that it can't come back and just bite me in the ass because that's the nature of the beast. That's yeah. what it does. It's it like, yeah. it preys on your, your unaware, your uh, lack of awareness that it's around yeah. the corner as soon as you think that you've defeated mm. it or whatever. Mm. And so I think it was a, understanding that that really allowed me to start interacting with it as um, an other almost yeah yeah and be able to separate myself in a depressed state from myself in a not depressed state and then myself trying just to be out of myself and just sort of almost like try and separate myself into as many different personalities as possible so that I could observe them all interacting and then apply that to the environments that they were in. Right. It sounds it makes me sound like a crazy person, but I think we've all got a bunch of personalities inside us. That's what how I dealt with it. It's just like trying to figure out why, which one had the fucking steering wheel and why. Right. You know, yeah. and then thinking I don't like when that depressed dickhead is driving because, you know, it's dangerous and it's it makes me feel shit. So, right. how can I make sure that I've got you know rational role and sitting at the mm. bloody steering wheel and has um, has medication played any role in this for you? Um, it hasn't. I I got pre- I got offered prescription medication really Indeed. quickly. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. That rattled me, and I was like, "Oh!" Suddenly, that was part of realizing like I was dealing with something very different to yeah. what other people were dealing with. And yeah. to be offered medication before the doctor saying, "Hey, how much sleep are you getting?" you take drugs what, are you, what food are you eating do you exercise much like yeah, yeah. asking these really basic things yeah and then I mean I could have lied about it but I didn't even get asked those questions the first thing they wow. said was well you know we've got this medication that medication and you right. know, we can go see a psychologist get them to evaluate you but here's what mm-hmm. we can do prescription wise right. and yeah. it was just like huh. that scared me I didn't like the idea of chemical interference right yeah right. did you read up on um, various medications that were offered to you? Have you informed yourself much about them? Not a whole lot, to be truthful. I, I had a few friends who were on them at high school and stuff, and yep. um, I'd seen the side effects. I didn't like the look of them, and it yeah, didn't right. really compel me to go and investigate whether <laughs> I wanted to have them. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's just, a, I just feel crazy fortunate for having had the wake up call to yeah. go, like, okay, before I start interfering with my chemical shit I'm going to go and yep. make sure every all my other ducks are in a row yeah right and it's like this hard thing I've had a mate who once asked me for help and mm-hmm. and I was really touched and it was because I'd talked to him about my experience and he knew that I'd sort of gone down this road mm-hmm. and then he asked me for help in a way that was really profound and I was worried he was never going to but the first thing I said to him was like well man you, yeah this is awesome I'm proud of you when you go to the doctor and the psychologist, mm-hmm. they're going to ask you these questions. Like, because I did see a psychologist, and they did ask me those questions of, "What's your diet like? Do you yep. sleep much? Yep. Exercising, drugs, yep. humans in your life, like all the stuff." Yep. And I knew that his answers to those questions were really poor, and I think he did as well. And so I said to him, "Like, man, you need a, like, yep. I want to help, and and other people are going to want to help too. But unless you help yourself and yep. get those ducks in a row." Not people can't really do much for you. Yeah, right. And yeah, 
but that actually just reminded me of a question that I thought of to ask you. Yeah. Have you ever had that? Someone ask you for help and then uh, refuse There's been it? a couple of incidents of uh, serious mental illness in my family, um, <clears throat> which I'm not really at liberty to talk about. Of course, of course. But uh, it's given me a lot of insight into how, how it can play out. You know, especially for younger people, mm. um, uh, but for older people too. Um, it seems to me like untreated mental illness has been um, taking people out for many, many years, a lot longer than today. Um, uh, and today, most many of those mental illnesses are able to be treated in, in a wide range of ways. And um, it's incredibly important to find your way towards treatment. And uh, the, the stigma involved in mental illnesses now it still exists, and uh, it's a serious bummer. Mm. People don't want to grapple with it. If you're not mentally ill, it's really hard to relate to someone who's mentally ill. Mm -hmm. You don't understand anything about it. Um, it, it. You know, it's not part of your experience. It's not my. It's not part of my experience. Um, like clinical depression, it's not part of my experience. Um, schizophrenia is not part of my experience. Uh, um, manic depression is not part of my experience at all. Uh, I've seen people suffer through them, but I don't have an experience of those things. And it's very hard, I think, for, for people to grasp the effect of those uh, conditions uh, on people who are suffering from them, mm. um, uh, simply because we're just not trained in that kind of empathy mm. as a rule, you know? Mm. Yeah. We care about the people who we love, we're supposed to care about the people in our family, but sometimes we really don't. Um, <laughs> there's limits on how much we tend to care about other people. Mm. Sometimes we care about people we've never met more than we care about the people we know. You know, uh, mm. we outsource empathy to others. Um, but that one, I think that that uh, not just the inability to understand what it might be like to have one of those mental illnesses, but the active fear of engaging with people mm. with mental illnesses because we don't understand it and we kind of don't want to understand it and so we'd rather it was a lot easier over to pretend there. it's not happening yeah. yeah it's over there but it's not over there is it yeah it's yeah right exactly here. that's the thing Every, everyone knows someone who's everyone who's, knows someone right yeah everyone's everyone knows someone in their own family or their friendship group uh even one step removed you, everybody knows somebody who's afflicted with a mental illness that's um the real thing and not just a neurosis or something. You know? Yeah, that's Not such that I'm a good... downplaying neurosis, but like it's totally different from being schizophrenic. Yeah. Oh no, totally. <laughs> that's such a good point, though. That yeah. to, to tell someone who's mentally unwell, do this and you'll feel better. Yeah. They don't know what feel better means. Yeah. So that's that's such a meaningless thing to say to somebody. So and even if you're well intentioned, they're like, you know, go for a run on the beach, you'll feel great. Well, I don't know what feeling great is. So where's the motivation? Yeah. It's just like, yeah. and, and then that's where the conversation kind of starts and. And, and stops. That's it. Stops right there. Yeah. 
It's, it's a tough one, that one. Um, so what would you, what would you suggest? Because my, my question was more about, like, I've had friends who have asked me for help, typically yep. on the piss or under the influence of some other thing. And, yeah. and it all comes out and we have a nice big DNM about it. And then the next day I phone them up. Hey, bro, how you going? Can we, like, let, let's talk more about, you know. Oh, I'm fine. Oh, no, I'm good. I'm good. Oh, no, it's just the booze talking, bro. Like, yeah. I'm sweet. Bro. And that happens so much. And yeah. you can't force someone to keep talking. You really can't. But that... It, it sometimes frustrates me because those experiences implicate you, and like I feel suddenly like I'm I'm in, I'm involved now, man. Like you told me some shit. Yeah. I can't pretend you didn't tell me that shit. Yep. And now you want me to, and it's like the that's a real burden. Yeah. It it can be a burden. Um, I guess there's a few strategies around that. <laughs> One thing you can do is just very gently get them to make an agreement with you. Hmm about checking in on a regular basis. That's a cool idea. Just very gently, just say, hey, look, let's just have a chat every week or so. You know, no pressure, mm. um, but let's just make a point of it because what you've told me tonight sounds really serious. Uh, and and, I've, and um, uh, it might be cool for us to have a, a chat every week or so. Mm. Like, there's, there's ways of saying that better than what I just said. No, I know what you mean completely. But, um, but, uh, <laughs> and by the way, I feel like words are very important in uh, the way in which you walk towards someone who's suffering mental illness in a way that, that can be helpful to them. Um, say the right thing at the right moment mm. uh, and you can get somewhere say the wrong thing it might become an excuse for them never to talk to you again yeah you know so yeah. it's delicate territory it's so delicate and, and, and it's no wonder people run away from it it's just it's just it's just not something that's taught to us so what do you think that is it's just left out of the syllabus at school and so it's generational mm. Here in Australia, right? Like, uh, I'm a I'm a fan of understanding recent history and a country's evolution. And um, Australia, as we know it today, is quite young. Um, you know, it's it's marked heavily by the arrival of European uh, settlers um, who decided to make this their home, not just sort of accidentally crashing onto the shoreline of Australia and going, oh shit, <laughs> trying to get away, yeah, the sorry. way the Dutch used to do yeah. when they were coming across the Indian Ocean and, and trying to turn left to go up to Java and kind of blowing it yeah, and getting smashed the Abrolos. <laughs> totally straight to the Abrolos. Um, all that. And not even like Cook, when he came in, just like coming along the coast and you know, mapping it a bit and, and crashing into a few reefs himself and then going home. But like Philip, you know, coming here with a fleet of people and saying, we're going to live here now. Mm. Um, that's so, that is not very long ago. Mm -hmm. 235 years ago is nothing, nothing. Eight generations, mm. nothing. So the idea of the, the awareness of mental illness in a public way and the, and the way in which we can all be part of solutions for our friends and family members uh, it's so new. It just hasn't filtered right down through 
generations of people yet. Mm. Um, maybe in eighty or a hundred years, we'll be way better at dealing with this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not. <laughs> but, but that's the kind of arc I think we're talking about. Yeah, I um, like that. And uh, I, I'm not sort of suggesting that we just go right. Well, in that case, let's not do nothing. Yeah. We have to be part of that arc. We have to step up. And yeah, learn it's not going to generate itself. It's not going to generate itself. But it, it's a long arc. And um, I just can't get too judgmental about that arc mm. with people and just go, well, fuck, what's wrong with you? you? You were fucked up for years and you wouldn't ask for help. Or, you know, fuck, your cousin just, you know, is a mess. Like, when you noticed or, like, Don't all you that. Or, yeah. You know, you were, you were my parent and you could have done more for me, so fuck you. I, I can't get into that kind of thinking. Like, mm. it doesn't work. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, we really have to be willing to do our part, but also to understand it's going to take a long time. Mm. It's a long arc. Mm. Mm. So what's something, you said that you did some uncool stuff. What's something that happened to you that you thought was really bad at the time that turned out to be really good for you? Hmm. Can be anything. Can be, you, took, you took off on a closeout this morning and, you know... <laughs> It cleared your sinuses. <laughs> uh, I've had a couple of breakups with girls when I was younger that I thought was just the worst thing ever. Mm. Uh, and they actually turned out to be uh, um, a really good thing. I wasn't suited. We weren't suited anyway. It was better that we weren't together. Um, uh, for the most part, I think the bad things that have happened in my life to, you know, uh, our mum dying when we were very young, uh, that was a very bad thing, especially the way in which she died. It took a long time. It was Sorry. painful. Uh, and, it, and it had repercussions that we didn't understand at that time and only became clear a lot later in our lives. Um, uh, I can't say that turned out to be a good thing, mm. but... Um, learning eventually to kind of move past the initial grief and uh, learning how to kind of, I don't know, somehow integrate grief and loss into your life so that you begin to understand it as just a part of life, that you don't get the stoke without the bummer. You don't, yes. get, you don't get love without grief. The peak without the trough. It's the, these. It's all very yin and yang, and yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that I was uh, materially or emotionally better off for my mum dying, but that is one thing that's coming from that was was like a an awareness of of um, for every wonderful thing in life, there's also going to be a cost. You have to be ready to pay that cost. Mm. You know. Um, if you want to love someone you are going to have to be ready at some point to grieve for them yeah you know yeah and they're going to have to be ready maybe to grieve for you you know uh, and if that happens in the natural course of things like um, my dad died last year oh man I'm sorry he was he was 94 years old he lived a really good life um, it wasn't a super fun last six weeks uh, but he was sentient and conscious throughout it. Uh, and my last memory of him alive was 
uh, of us um, sharing a good laugh and a joke. He was in hospital, but we were having a laugh about something or other. Yeah. Then I said, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. And, uh, then that night he died of a heart attack. And while there was a lot of grief and a lot of generational um, pain in that, I remember going to see him the next morning and sitting by his bed and reaching under the covers and holding his hand. He's, he was still warm. And uh, I just sat there next to him and I held his hand for a while and then I got up on the bed and lay there next to him and held his hand and I was just thinking about my mum and my sister who'd also died when she was quite young and uh, just thinking about all those resonant meaningful things that had happened in our lives together mm. him being my dad and me being his son um, and I that wasn't a traumatic thing. That was a really natural, fluid thing. Um, mm. He was an old man. He was going to die. He knew he was going to die. We talked about it before he died. It's in the natural course of things. You know, he had four kids, me, Tom. had five. One of them, our oldest sister, died already. We have two little sisters. Um, uh, he was happy with how we'd all turned out. Uh, he felt like his life was fairly complete. Uh, and we all felt quite complete in our relationships with him. There's grief in that, but there's no toxic disappointment or fear or any of that stuff. It's just a sense of this is the natural flow of things for people. Mm. Just, we're born, we die. Uh, and that can be like a tremendously strengthening process, even though it's supposed to be like this. Oh, God, he's dead! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually... A potentially a really strengthening and heartening process and uh, you'll see your own mortality out there somewhere yeah. and understand that that is out there waiting for you at some point which is a really fantastic thing to know <laughs> yeah but well it's that thing thank first off thank you for sharing that story that's yeah. amazing and yeah, it's this right. thing like everyone everyone has this crazy pathological fear of death and it's the only guarantee in the human experience is you That's, will die. You know you'll point. die. You're definitely going to die. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, if you want a good death, you better live as good a life as you can. Yeah, totally. You know, uh, there's not really much else there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't be looking to heaven. Yeah, and, but it, and the energetic resonance is such a nice word that you use to like... Deeply leave resonant. behind There's, that's, what, yeah. that's what legacy means yeah. it's like how you continue to affect the world after yeah. you've gone look honestly talk to anyone I've really noticed this in conversations with older people is what they're really interested in is births and deaths mm. they're really interested in hearing about the latest grandkid mm. and they're really interested in <coughs> hearing about um, you know the life story of their latest dead friend you know? Yeah. And they'll talk about both those things um, and they'll refer each other to those events um, because as you get older, you begin to learn that those are the things that count. Mm. Like the things you think are really important, trying to be cool in front of your buddies, mm. um, you know, trying to like make a lot of money, um, trying to, I don't know, get hold of the right kind of phone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, none of that's important. It yeah. really is not important. Birth, death, 
marriage connection. Those are the things that older people talk about because they've understood, they've come to understand that those are the things that are important. Yeah, so there must be an educational breakdown at some point because it's almost like you can't realise that those things don't matter until you've had them and then you realise that their, their potency mm. on your feelings has, you know, waned. Yeah. And yeah. then suddenly they're not being cool, having the phones not as important as yeah. ringing a mate and checking in on something that happened to him recently. Or Simple stuff. Right? Yeah, really basic stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's, I guess, maybe another thing that if, if you do have someone who's close to you who's suffering from mental illness, remember those conversations you have with them, they don't need to be complicated. You know, they're yep. just the same kind of conversation you have with anyone. Yeah, yeah. Who you care about. How's things? What are you up to? What's going on? Yep. If they tell you things that scare you or worry you, you can always call someone. You can always call Lifeline or whatever and get some counselling for yourself. Uh, I'd highly recommend that, by the way. The other stigma in society is like that you should not undergo psychological counselling because it means there's something terribly wrong with you. Mm. It's just not the case. Again, you could compare it to physical health. Um, uh, if you've spent too much time in the office for 10 years and you've just got pudgy and you're slow and your heart's not working as well as it could, can you go see someone about that at a gym or whatever? Uh, they can set you right. Maybe you join up with some of your friends and do some activities regularly. Mm. You know, well, same you, with the mind, yeah. right? You roll your ankle, pretty minor injury, but you'll go to a physiotherapist. Mm. And it's like... There's no stigma about that. No stigma about that. But it's so weird that someone tells you something that's really deeply disturbing and there is a stigma about asking for a bit of help about that. Yeah. Even though it's completely anonymous. And even though it's possibly more important. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why there's a stigma about it. We've placed too much importance on that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, um, it can even be a simple that I've noticed. I've been trying to like tell myself to do it this year. Yeah. Just smile at people. It's such yeah. a fucking basic thing to do on the street. Yeah. And it's made me realise how few people are out there smiling. And yeah. it's kind of like, it's a little bit depressing thing about it like that. But then it's, it's all the more meaningful to be like, okay, well, I'm not going to be one of those people who just accidentally glares at everyone <laughs> like, as like the resting bitch scowl. The resting, resting bitch scowl. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really... Um, it's easy I'm, to deduce it by accident. I'm completely, I'm, I'm very guilty of that, especially in the surf. Like I'll Fully in the surf. surf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll put on the resting bitch scowl just to make sure everyone gets the hell out of my way. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very like kind of unnecessarily forceful in that way in the water a lot of the time, um, especially at my home break here because I've got a terrible sense of ownership of it. You've been here your whole life. I've been, been here my whole life. Sometimes that ownership feeling... It, is it changes and it becomes more a sense of like I'm just part of this I can be a good part of it I can be a nice part of it I can be the guy who paddles out and, and who's the alpha but who um, doesn't uh, push other people out of the way instead just like helps the line up to fall into place mm. you know um, uh, I try to be like that as much as I can but occasionally I go back to being um, aggressive alpha Nick and it's it, it never makes me feel good this is a really tip for grommets out there yeah right you want to be aggressive alpha you want to lay claim to your break okay well surf it good and everyone will step out of your way it's fine that's all you need to do alright you don't need to tell people to fuck off you, you, <laughs> you don't you don't need to bung the resting scale bitch face on yeah. onto them um, 
You can pal out, smile at everyone, say hello, and still get all the best waves. Yeah, let your surfing do the talking. Let your surfing do the talking. It's so easy to forget, though, in a primal kind of combative environment like yeah. surfing, especially when it gets big or serious. Yeah. And you're sort of, it's like being in combat. It's like hunting or something where it just reverts us to like, this ultra biological testosterone alpha shit. Right, back to the animal. Right? Yeah, but like on the street, none of that. Like on the street, yeah. you just walk on the footpath. Yeah. If you don't smile at someone, it's almost turns, it means it's hostile. Yeah. You both just glared at each other and yeah. for some reason that was hostile and it so didn't need to be. And no, I you think can just say hello, smile, it's so easy. I think about the random grins or the people that have yelled shit at me to my, because they've seen my truck and they just yell shit out and like smiling and whatever. Yeah. And like that can really buzz your day up. That can really like, if, especially if it's like a bit of a downhill day. Sure. Suddenly it can just like change the trajectory and suddenly brighten, brighten everything. everything up, right? You never know how far that smile could go just for like someone out there on the street who might be, yeah, you know, totally in a bad place. It could be just the thing that brightens their day enough, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, one thing I did want to say, Roland, is that like. I'm really clear that I have no expertise, whatever, in these matters. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons I'm a journalist is because I like to educate myself in things. And so uh, I've turned to people who are far more educated than I am in these matters. And um, uh, so I'm very cautious about giving anyone any advice. I respect that completely. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm intently aware of my own shortcomings. And, um, you know, it's a little bit like when people start telling people how to to do a pop-up in the surf. And a lot of the time I read that stuff and I just laugh because I think they've no idea what they're telling people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And it's a bit like that would be me with mental illness if I started trying to give people advice about it. I just have very little grounding in the subject compared with um, uh, people who are experts in the field who've, who've done deep dish studies and have read every, all the data mm. uh, all that stuff I've a great deal of respect for expertise I know it's not a modern thing to have respect for that but you know pretty much in any, any area of life um, it's really wise to, to take on board people who know a lot more about something than you do Absolutely. No, I agree with you and I completely respect um, your approach to that because I feel like, especially with mental health, someone who tells you they have the answers, that's someone you definitely need to not listen to because like, there's so few answers. Yeah. But I, I do feel as well that with such, um, such little academia about it, I mean, like, you're 30 years my senior, so I'm going to defer to you as the authority on, on mental health <laughs> in that sort of regard where yeah. it's like... It's such an unknown that um, I feel there's still value in just talking to people about their life experiences yeah, yeah. and just appreciating someone's honesty. Yeah. And that can teach... I find I've learnt as much about mental health through doing that as I have about reading studies and, and listening to professors and doctors and psychologists and stuff. Sure, yeah. I think... It, but I do completely... I agree with what you're saying. That that's like there's core science about it and there is real evidence. Yeah much more so than the stories that you and I tell one another yeah. in the surf club. <laughs> yeah. But, like, I think there's still value in telling the stories. I'm sure you're right about that. And I do think, you know, I just have a hunch about this, but I think one of the 
social things that might help with um, men mental illness over time is it seems like most mental illnesses are suffered by people quite early in their lives uh, and the same goes for a lot of uh, the neuroses that can look like mental illness or can mask mental illness. Mm. Um, they occur because of family breakdown or, or something that happens quite early in a person's life. And I just, I, I strongly feel it would be great <coughs> if, there were, if there were more old person, young person relationships happening. Um, uh, there's a terrible tendency in a young society such as Australia's to dismiss older people, mm. put them away in nursing homes. Um, you know, shut them down after a certain age because you know who wants to be bothered with them because what do they know just getting about the way? You yeah. know, they're just in the way now. We've got to do stuff. We're busy. Fuck. You know, uh, and there's a corresponding sense of deep like anxiety and regret about that, um, which comes out sometimes when um, you see reports into into aged care homes mm. and you see what happened in the aged care homes um, uh, during the early part of this, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, that uh, aged care homes in Australia have, were shown to have a disgraceful record of taking care of people. Mm. Um, you really got to think three times about that, I think. Um, it's not necessarily that older people deserve respect as a result of their age. It's more that that sense of the important things in life that you get as you get older is, is great when it's transmitted to kids because they have a sense of that too. Like, I don't know if this was true for you, but I watched this with my own kids. Um, when they were like four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years of age, the family was so important to them. Mm. And it was so important to them to know they had grandparents and to know they were part of a continuum. And they, they were, in a way, it was an emotional shelter. Mm. And then as they got older, they were keen to sort of bust out of that shelter and go and like turn themselves into themselves, right? Which is also really natural and human. Um, uh, but in the end, they're going to turn out just like every other old person. They're going to have this sort of uh, hard one wisdom about what matters and what doesn't. Yeah. And, um, but, you know. That, just that connection between old people and young people feels to me like it would be really valuable if it were more encouraged uh, and if there were systems by which that could happen aside from just families. Mm. Because the nuclear family, wonderful as it is, is just not enough in the world. Yep. We need everybody, not just a few people. Yeah, that diversity of wisdom. Diversity of wisdom and, you know, you, we all needed this, like, um, when you're young, if you're a young man or a young woman, you need a, a, a lot of people who you can look at and think, right, that person's older than me and they're doing something that interests me. Yep. Right? And so I can see a way to do that. I have a path in front of me here to do something. Yeah. Um, rather than just kind of like being stuck with a single role model, you know, how about having 120 role models? Yeah. Life. Yeah. Fully. Yeah. You know. Um, and just seeing someone in one of those positions, and just knowing that the path exists—not even necessarily like knowing what the path is—but acknowledging no. that if someone's older than you, doing something you look up to or you respect, then 
they got there somehow and there's only one way to find out which is to connect with them and appreciate them and yeah ask and they have to be in your life they can't be like just in the newspaper yeah yeah. they have to be there in your life visible available to you at some point some critical point where you just go wow okay I can be I can make films you know I can um, do this I can do that yeah Uh, they have those relationships they're old um, that's really what the apprentice relationship in trades are. Mm. You know, that's that's a, a a formula for having that role model happen. It still exists. I like surfing for the fact that it still exists. Like role really models does, still hey. exist in surfing in a way that they. Uh, the only other comparable place I've seen is I've got friends who do mixed martial arts, and it sounds like on the jujitsu mats, there's this very similar sort of um, almost ceremonial appreciation of role models and, and seniority and wisdom yeah and the yeah the, like the community that that they experience and that I've experienced in the surf for the same thing that that community is like it's very visceral and it's very mm. hard to find anywhere else yeah yeah, yeah. common interest yeah definitely <laughs> and like longevity like seeing someone yeah. doing something that is just like occupying all of my attention to go uh-huh. surfing and here's someone who ostensibly has experienced the same level of preoccupation but they've done it for 45 years more than me so yeah. fuck how did you do that what yeah, have you been you doing do to it. be able to still do it now and clearly it's been worth it yeah, you know? yeah. like for Jerry it's been really worthwhile he's, he's uh, lived a great life because yeah. he decided to put it into longevity and um yeah, he's pretty funny. Like, Jerry's got this whole sort of uh, rap as like a Zen wisdom kind of guy, mm. all right, you mm. know? But actually, he's a greedy fucker, huh? Like, that's <laughs> why he catches so many waves. Really? <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny, like, watching him just circle a lineup, just like, round and round and round and round. And everyone's like, oh, it's Jerry Lopez. So they just give let him all him the go. waves and they just let him go. But, yeah. like, even if they didn't let him go, he'd still do it. Really? <laughs> Because like he's there to do it, he's there to do that. He's there. To, he's not there to sit out the back and gossip. Yeah, like, I want to catch waves. That actually brings me. I want to let you go and continue living your life and stuff. But cool. I have, if you don't mind, one more thing to run past you, which yep. is pretty much what you just said. Okay. The fact that we are competing for a finite resource, or what feels like a finite resource of waves. Yep. So I look at this is something I've been thinking heaps about this year in terms of how many people are surfing now, particularly in well-populated areas like Sydney. Sure. And knowing that I've gained so much from surfing and I don't know really where I'd be mentally without it. I don't know what I would have replaced it with. Yep. But I also don't want to share that many waves. (laughs) And I'm sort of like trying to balance this thing where I know that the world would be a better place if everyone surfed, but it would mean that I didn't get to surf as much. As much, yeah. So I'm interested in your take on that. Like, would you, if you look at what surfing's given you and you knew that there was someone else out there who had the same needs and could have them fulfilled by taking your place in the lineup, how you would reconcile or whether you'd reconcile stepping away and letting them in, or like, how do you how do you balance that? Well, um, that's a funny one, really. Like, there's a lot of surfers my age who really, really hate other people in the water. Um, it's the thing they most hate about surfing is the fact that other people do it, <laughs> um, and uh, they have no insight into this at all. Mm. They've seemingly no willingness to have any insight into it they're just happy to hate other surfers uh anyone who started surfing after they did you know just shouldn't be surfing okay 
Yeah. Um, well, you know, I, I can understand that, but uh, I'm not on that team at all. I've always felt fine with other people surfing. Um, uh, started writing books about how to surf when I was like 21 or something because mm. I wanted people to have a better surfing experience and I wanted to understand it better myself and maybe because of looking up to guys like Jerry and that I never felt like like it didn't feel like surfing was something I invented at all like I just felt like I'd been super fortunate to inherit it from all these people who you know and then like going right back to Hawaiian people and Polynesian people before surfing ever crossed the cultural barrier, you know, mm-hmm. into the West. Um, you know, it's, it, I've inherited it. It's not mine. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, but what makes surfing difficult and what pulls me into that sort of aggressive state of mind is when I start thinking that surfing is mine, mm. you know, that I have ownership over it. I super distrust that sense of ownership over surfing. Uh, it feels to me like it's kind of what surfing has been trying to teach me the whole time is that I don't own it, that I don't possess it. That, it um, cannot be possessed. That, it, that it's not mine to possess. It never was. It never will be. You know, uh, that it's not mine to get angry with other surfers because they're surfing. Um, uh, and while I'm always going to hunt down the waves I want, um, and I've got to balance that up against that knowledge, but that knowledge is of surfing not being mine is, is fundamental to me now, like how I think about surfing, mm. is that it's a gift that's been given to me mm. uh, to have for a while and then let go of, you know, <clears throat> pass it on. Like I'll die and there'll be people surfing. Yeah. yeah, the sport won't die with you. That's such yeah. a good point. Uh, I love that as a note to finish on. Thanks for that, Nick, because that's a yeah. perfect thing. No one owns the surf. And yeah. No worries, Roland. Perfect, mate. All right, thank <laughs> you very much. I'll get all this crap out of here and we'll go. Okay. Thank you. And that's that. I don't know how you're feeling right now. I know that I walked out of that conversation really electrified. I was really... Um, I don't know, grateful, grateful for the platform, like I said, because even though things got heavy, I I just put that down to the fact that we just, Nick set this epic platform for an even conversation. And I'm, I'm so thankful for every opportunity you get to communicate with a 100% understanding that there is genuinely no judgment. Like for me, that's the most valuable communication I can have because it involves discussing like treacherous and potentially upsetting things in safety and having confidence that the landing is going to be gentle no matter what gets said. So yeah, that the rarity of that means that I'm very, very grateful for that conversation. And you know what? I'm also kind of desensitized to embarrassing myself, my friends, because I'll tell you why. Um, I wasn't that cool in high school. Like I played, I mean, isn't that ironic? We introduced the idea of cool in that conversation. We both kind of denounced it and then went on to continue using that word. It's an unhelpfully ubiquitous word, but I definitely wasn't cool in high school. I played the flute in the band. I sung solos in musicals. And in one such musical, I had a testy pop because I guess my voice was breaking as my testicles descended and mid-solo, just singing to one other person on stage in front of 500 people, I went, no, wait, one of those ones. 
16-year-old, how old? Doesn't really matter. Same thing. It happened, didn't it? So the good thing about it is that it's desensitized me to, to embarrassment. I don't really care because... I've got this thing where I can't remember where I read it, but the idea is to detach from the momentum of past behavior because if you're not interacting with it in the past, it doesn't exist in the present. So I'm practicing that constantly. And it means that, yeah, I almost cried on microphone and then put it on the internet. But who cares? It's about to be Christmas. Do I really care about Christmas? No, but I'm still excited about that because it means family, dogs, sunshine, a couple of beers. Anyway, thank you for listening to this conversation. Uh, And if you found it helpful or if it actually did touch a raw nerve, then maybe send it to someone who you think might also get something out of it. And even if you don't send it to someone, which I completely understand because sometimes I go from enjoying the useful functionality of my phone to absolutely hating it uh, in the space of a second and not wanting to share things and message people and whatever, but just keep it in the back of your head, maybe just to listen out over the break for opportunities to talk with people in your tribe. Because we've all had the weirdest year. Like it's a guarantee that someone you know isn't feeling as good as they were this time last year. And there's going to be opportunities that come up when you can maybe just intercept them and have a really meaningful, disruptive and and loving conversation. And we've all had a weird year. So we've got to look out for each other. So if you want to look out for your mate Rolls and give me a Prezi, then I guess you could write a review or give me a star rating because literally any and all reviews will be massively appreciated. Even if it's not a five-star glowing message of appreciation, I just get such a kick out of any response at all, guys, because it means actual communication is happening. And that's an amazing thing. Um, That's it from me. Good luck over Chrissy and congratulations on getting to the tail end of this bizarre 365 days on planet Earth in 2020. Weird. Cool. Okay, cool and nice. Chat to you later.